get a grip, John. Okay. Um, you're not here to kill me. I figured that part out for myself. So what's the deal? My mission is to protect you. Yeah? Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now, you reprogrammed me to be your protector here, in this time. This is deep. Well, that is Arnold Schwarzenegger's depiction of Cyberdyne Systems Model 101. I'm Derek Gottlieb, and this is Episode 9 of the Point 10 Podcast. We're here with two of our favorite guests. Without any ado at all, let's get right into it. It is so great to be back with... Winston Thompson and Andy Carlson to talk about the Terminators. And by the Terminators, I mean the first two Terminators because those were, let's face it, the only the ones. only good ones. The only ones, <laughs> much like the Matrix. There's only a limited number, despite what we are. I'm going to make this joke every, every time we do this. <laughs> it's very important. Continuity, etc. So, do you remember... Two questions now because we're talking about two movies in this sort of podcast. Sure. Do you remember the first time you saw either one of these? And did you actually see them in order when you were little? I went I went first last time, Winston, so I, I don't want to <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll jump in. Yeah, so so I don't think I saw them in order, which is, you know, I mean, it's just one of those which I think it's a real shame, right? Because uh, the sequence of these movies, I think, it really kind of uh, makes the second one, you know, pop in a in a very sort of uh, important way. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I think I saw T two first. I was, you know, the right age to kind of be, sort of idolize, uh, identify with John Connor as this kind of scrappy young kid, smart aleck, uh, makes his own rules, still trying to figure it out. Um, so I, my, yeah, my sense is that I saw T2 first and then, you know, sometime later went back and saw the first one and at the time sort of thought, well, you know, prefer, prefer the second one. Um, I think I probably still prefer the second film. Um, of course the first one just you know, does a lot of important groundwork, um, uh, certainly. So, yeah, um, yeah, saw T2 first and then went back and uh, then had the full experience of The Terminator uh, and the lead-in to T2. And you, Andy? Uh, <clears throat> same. So I actually have a very clear memory of, uh, of when I saw this. Um, is it came out in the summer. You know, this was like back in the day when, you know, when summer was the blockbuster, you know, I think Shorter. 89, like, uh, you know, the Tim Burton Batman movie kind of sort of set that template. And then, you know, for like a big chunk of the 90s, it was like the sum, you know, like Jurassic Park came out in the summer. Oh, my sure. God, yes. um, Oh, yeah. You know, like, oh, my God. <laughs> when we talk about Jurassic Park, I mean, my, my first memory <laughs> of seeing Jurassic Park is, is one that is, is also still with me. Um, but And there are only two of those <clears throat> as well. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's amazing how that works out. <laughs> But um, so I, my dad, uh, my my family practitioner, physician father, uh, took my my little brother and me to see Terminator Two in the movie theaters um, over at Westtown Mall, you know, in, in July or whatever. I remember it was just like a hot sunny day, and um, my brother was eight, so I was I was twelve, um, and I don't having now. 
an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old in my household, I, I would not take them to see this movie. <laughs> I would not take yeah. them to see these movies. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I guess, I guess that's what practicing medicine does to a person. Um, <laughs> so what I, what I remember, though, is um, one, just being absolutely swept away and, like, floored by, you know, the, the, the T-1000 special effects and just the bigness of the movie uh the piece that stuck with me um you know and i probably this is because you know we my dad we talked about it in the car afterwards and it was really uh big for him was the dream sequence the nuclear Mm. apocalyptic dream sequence that sarah connor has um of the kids playing in the playground Mm -hmm. and then the nuke hitting los angeles and just the sort of incredibly visceral filmmaking of of you know of these carbonized children's bodies flying apart mm-hmm. um and then her own skeleton hanging on the fence and it, my dad developed a pet theory that like <clears throat> you know that <laughs> the popularity of of the mo- of that movie and the the visceral nature of that sequence uh was responsible for you know a lot of the um you know that that it was part of like an anti-nuclear weapons. Um, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like a very well-developed theory, but you know, it was just like, how could this not have impacted? Uh, you know, because this was like the most popular movie of all time, or something. It was like For the highest-grossing Titanic. Yeah, until yeah, and so yeah, it was like there was there might have been something there. I don't know, but yeah, I, I remember very well, just like you know. <laughs> And then, and then it kind of became a, a running family joke that like the, the the bullets that Arnold was shooting out of his guns would you know progressively get more and more you know uh, tumescent from uh, scene to scene, and you know at the end he's shooting this thing that's like firing coke cans at the. Sure. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> tumescent is a great word that is underutilized. By the way, we'll we'll just start there. I also saw these movies very much out of order. I also have a very clear memory of seeing T2 in the theaters when I was 12. Weirdly, I say it's clear. I went to see this with Dan Barry first, who's uh, the father of Joe Barry, uh, a third member of our uh, friend group in like uh, middle school, uh, scoutmaster, general wise, you know, adult also, figure. also a physician, also a physician, also a family <laughs> practitioner, obviously. Um, what I remember is strangely, I don't remember Joe being there, but I also don't think I went to see this movie just with Dan Barry at mineral point 10 cinemas, by the way, uh, the namesake of this podcast. So (laughs) that, okay. That that's the one that just shut down recently, right? I'm sorry. What did it? (laughs) Oh no. I think, I I think it did. Well, in that case, this is the one, podcast is now on an homage (laughs) (laughs) r.i.p r.i.p but so like we went to see this and all like i remember walking into the theater and dan barry being like they used computers to make the graphics in this and me being like oh that's cool we'll see some of this Rewatching it now i was like i'm like this is the most tasteful use of cgi that i have seen 
in a long time. I'm like, they, I know mm. that they didn't have the capacity to overuse it. And so that temptation wasn't necessarily there, but like, I appreciated every, like my, my memory prior to rewatching this was of the like checkered floor oozing mm. up into the T-1000. That was a great shot that had to be like the T-1000 in all metallic form does not look as good as I remember it uh, being, sure. but obviously it was fantastic then, but then just like the way that, at one point, Sarah Connor blows a hole in the T-1000's head and the camera sort of swoops around so that you can see her through the hole, which yeah, that was an, like I was like, we're, we're using CGI in the way that God intended. And that is uh, <laughs> that was a blessing to me. I, I don't like I think it must have been it's not like I saw Terminator 2 and then went right out and rented. Terminator One. It was years. I feel like before I saw that, Same. And I was like, "Oh, that's weird." I was expecting this to be a better movie, <laughs> like given yeah. T yeah. two. Interesting. Well, yeah, you know, it, it's so interesting. I mean, oh, sorry. Go go ahead, Andy. No, no, no. Well, I was just going to say it's so interesting. You know, just to kind of revisit these movies and and really reflect on the Terminator, right? The first film. I mean, it's just, it's such a lean film. It's stripped down. It's almost you know. In comparison to T two, it's almost kind of like a proof of concept. It's like yeah. it, it's it's like you know, it's it's a good fit. It's a it's a it's a great film, right? It's a great film, but in comparison, it's just far fewer moving parts. Um, you know, you just kind of get introduced to the basics of the world, uh, the sort of core ideas, uh, the core themes come up, um, but. Yeah, again, it's just really stripped down. It's almost as if it's kind of serving as, you know, kind of uh, 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 you could one could almost believe that T2 is the movie and mm -hmm. the Terminator was just this kind of attempt to bring everybody up to speed so that you could have the full experience of uh, enjoying T2. I mean, that's not how it you know actually came together but um but just the comparison between the two films is is, is really striking or was striking mm -hmm. for me uh in this rewatch and revisit yeah it's like a sketchbook entry um that's right that's right yeah you know and, and actually just um and so just to digress for a second derek i just double checked the point ten cinemas hasn't shut down um i, I was thinking that's of the, the discount theater over um market square Market oh my Square. God, that's even down. more of a tragedy. So, I know. Where are we going to go see three dollar movies? They, that those days are done. That man. business plan um, couldn't have lasted. I'm surprised it lasted <laughs> as long as it did. No, sh yeah, really. Um, but uh, you know, to the T uh, two, uh, you know, being kind of the the fully realized version. Um, you know, I like Derek. I did not see. I did not see the original Terminator movie until I had seen Terminator 2 a dozen times, probably. <laughs> mm. Like, like you know, it was in, like, regular rotation because it kicks so sure. much ass. Um, <laughs> and and so finally seeing T1, it was like, oh, it's this, like, gritty little art house film about, you know, love and the, cy love, love and the cyborg. Um, <laughs> the cyborg. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's... And this time rewatching, uh, you know, to prepare for this podcast, I, I, I did, I, I wasn't able to rewatch T2, but I, I did watch Term the, the original Terminator. That's, it's only the second time I've ever seen it. That's um, crazy. Which is so, you know, but, and, and I, I mean, once you've oh, seen it once, 
it's not like there's added layers of depth, really. I mean, the, what I love about it, it's like stripped down. To, I mean, I don't mean to insult T1, obviously. It really is a great film, but it is extremely simple. It's designed that way. Like uh, Michael Bean's Reese at one point just straight up says he's like when he's in the police station talking to the psychologist, he's like, you know, they sent me through, well, they sent him through, they sent me through, then they blew up the time displacement equipment. Nobody goes home. It's just me and him. That's the movie. That's the movie. Yeah, stripped down. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. There's not yeah. more yeah. layers. <laughs> right. You know, and so, but to your point, Winston, I think that, you know, just the, the few things that I read to, you know, kind of prepare for this, you know, like James Cameron actually... You know his his notion in the uh, you know was originally um, you know he was envisioning something more like T two where you know the the floor kind of morphs into the robot and mm. you know this sort of shape shifting you know test your um, you know your sense of reality kind of uh, kind of questions that was like part of his original concept but the technology wasn't there sure. and John Carpenter had just uh, released uh, uh, was the thing. The, the thing, and, the thing, and he was like, "Nah, it's too many, you know, shape shifting, you know, space mm. alien movies." And, Fascinating, you know, and and so he, I think that accounts for some of the, you know, the propulsive focus, um, mm. you know, which really I think works to the movie's benefit. There's nothing extra, you know. It's just, um, you know, it's it's love on the run. It's uh, an unstoppable uh, assailant who cannot who cannot be reasoned with. You know, who has no human frailties like shame or, you know, need for concealment. Um, Like, there's some need for concealment, but, (laughs) you know. um, But then what what really then hit me was, like, how many of the, like, the film, the the, the beats, how many, uh, like, you know, even whole scenes were just, like, lifted wholesale from... The Terminator to Terminator Two, it was you know in some ways it's almost like a remake uh, of the first mm-hmm. movie, that that just you know amplifies everything, but also but, quite different. Did you guys catch Bill Paxton as like the blue haired whatever? Like, sure. Dude, oh yeah. Was like holy <laughs> yes. shit, he's like nineteen in this movie. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and a, yeah a, a only in it for Lance, one scene. And yeah. a young Lance Henriksen. That, <laughs> yeah. That's not even a thing that exists. <laughs> that guy's been sixty <laughs> since the day he was born. Um, but just to my, just to finish my last thought was just like, um, can I finish my last thought? Uh, no, I'll have to come back to it. Perfect. Sorry. Well, just let me, let me, let me just pick up because I think, uh, Andy, you said a very, you know, uh, interesting thing there about sort of the way that the second film is kind of a, a, a remake of the first. In some ways, that's, you know, that's just thematically fitting for a film about time travel because you get a lot of these kind of echoes happening across the two films, right? So you get, you know, the, the, uh, sort of the repetition of the, the, the line, you know, come with me if you want to live. You get, you get, you know, Arnold dropping, you know, I'll be back, right? The first instance of it in The Terminator, it's this menacing, you know, I'll be back, right? But the second instance is I'll be back because I care for you, right? I'm coming back. I'm not going to leave you, right? It's, it's So you get this kind of uh, really 
poetic uh, kind of um, uh, rhythm or rhyme happening here uh, in in that you're revisiting some of these moments uh, in certain ways, but um, but they, they they've got a different salience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I I remembered my thought, which was that. Uh, <clears throat> You know, you don't know in the first movie, you spend the first half hour, you know, if unlike me, you had not, you know, spent your adolescence watching Terminator 2 over and over and over again, <laughs> you, you don't know who the bad guy is, you know. Sure. You know, it, yeah. it, it feels like Sarah Connor is being pursued, you know, by a pair of maniacs who, yeah. you know, like naked maniacs who appear <laughs> in like lightning bolts and, you know, you don't know what the what the story is. Um it's become such a part of the the the, the, the cultural cultural consciousness now that you know it, I I just I can't I wish I could see with fresh eyes that scene where he's like you know excising his his human eyeball to to reveal yeah. the yeah. like whole I would have lost my fucking mind man yeah <laughs> wow yeah. That yeah. one, that's an incredible shot. I mean, it doesn't look great now, the sort of like yeah. plastic mask that he has. But mm-hmm. I remember I remember seeing that for the first time. I wasn't that old when I saw it. I don't know, 15 or 16. I was 12 when I saw T2. But like looking at that scene, you're like, oh, shit. Very intense. It looks different to me on the rewatch, too, mainly because this is, I mean, weird, but because... No Country for Old Men is a movie I really like. And suddenly I'm like, oh, shit, it's just Terminator. That's literally all that it is. Anton Chigurh is hmm. the Terminator. We, It's like beat for beat. You have like a character who like you can't reason with, who doesn't experience yeah. pain, who like, you know, gets shot up and has to like. And there's like dramatic scenes of him like caring for himself in uh, a hotel room. That's the whole thing is he's unstoppable evil, except he's supposed to be human and that's the interesting thing. Also, there's mm. I feel like there's better dialogue in No Country for Old Men, which you would expect from <laughs> Cormac McCarthy. The the one dude being like, This Shigor character, how bad is he? Woody Harrelson gets to reply, compared to what? Bubonic plague? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's a great line. It's a great line. Oh. Now I've derailed well, I- that. <clears throat> Say what? I said, now I've derailed that side of the conversation. <laughs> be like, By the way, no country for old men. But it really, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in the original Terminator is unsmiling, emotional. He is exactly the machine that Reese says he is uh, with a single-minded purpose, etc. One of my favorite moments in Terminator 2 on this rewatch that I obviously wouldn't have gotten, seen it before I ever saw a T1 is Sarah Connors running through the hospital about to make her mistake or her escape and Arnold emerges from the elevator and the absolute abject horror on her face. You're like, no, it's okay. He's a good person now, but like imagine, imagine this thing that you've been predicting or like telling people who say you're crazy is going to happen. Suddenly here is the reanimated Terminator in front of you. How good of an actor is Linda Hamilton? I mean... Phenomenal. Like, Phenomenal. So just the scene in the police station where she's cowering under the desk, I... Yeah. You know, I... In it, one thing that popped into my head, and, and this kind of relates to that, is, uh, you know, what she's selling is just how... Uh, 
just the absolute visceral trauma of, you know, there, there are a lot of eighties action movies that, you know, have this kind of, um, you know, like zipless fuck quality where, you know, it's just like, ice to see you Mendoza, <laughs> you know, like and people get blown to pieces and everybody just kind of carries on like, okay, you know, yeah, <laughs> just a thing that happens in this, you know, universe. Um, but like what really hit me was that this is a movie that is, that takes seriously the human experience of trauma and the yeah. human experience of, um, you know, of being broken by witnessing unspeakable events. Um, the scene where, you know, the, the, there's a callback scene where, or there's a scene where, um, where Reese is hot wiring a car next to a construction site mm -hmm. and he has a literal flashback. Yeah, it right. depicts him having yeah. like, you know, a PTSD flashback mm -hmm. because he has known nothing but brokenness and nothing but, you know, just the most abject horror. Um, you know, oh, it just, it was really, it just really hit me. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think situating historically this movie, it, you know, it's kind of hard to do because you know, Vietnam feels like very much of a different era, but you know, the Vietnam war ended 10 years before this movie came out. Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, 10 years is not that long of a time. Yeah, no, exactly. This is, this is one of the fun things that I, well, fun things. This is one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is getting to revisit stuff that like I had no cut being born four years after the end of the Vietnam war. That was fucking ancient history. Uh, growing up, mm. like I knew that Watergate had happened and all that kind of stuff, but it wasn't part of, I mean, that was textbook stuff, not part of my lived experience. And yet all these movies that, you know, I would consume avidly as a teenager are grappling with, you know, the memory of these events in various kinds of ways, science fiction-y or, or less so. So that, like, that's huge. That's a, that's a really worthwhile thing to point out. And that, that seemed to just come back to this for a moment that you mentioned your uh, dad's theory about the sort of nuclear holocaust in 1994 like this is it's 1994 that this event supposedly takes place t2 comes out in 1991 that's the uh -huh. year that the soviet union collapses but this fear of nuclear war had been hanging over the entire earth for a long time in a way that was never palpable to me as a kid necessarily mm. Dan Barry hmm. had in his basement this sort of like no escape from Wisconsin or no in escape Wisconsin in Wisconsin poster, which shows all the sort of nuclear sites around. But like, and I, so I knew it had been a, a, a site of activism. Three mile Island was in living memory, Chernobyl, that kind of stuff. But like the idea that the United States, like that there would be a nuclear exchange and that would eliminate all life on earth was not a, a, a live possibility to me in the way that it would have been to somebody who was just five or 10 years older than me. And in a way, like I feel like we, we yeah, should have I talked think... more. Cause I was absolutely like, <laughs> you were, you I were was, thinking was... about the, the, the nuclear apocalypse. First, I, I was quite front aware. Of mind. Of... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we talked about it like uh summer camp, you know? Um, <laughs> so what's your nuclear apocalypse going to be like? <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> Well, you're just like, you know, the, the kind of the crunchier counselors would, you know, oh, be, sure, sure. be up to date on like the, you know, uh, the the state of the, the nuclear, um, you know, test ban treaties and uh, the salt treaties and whatnot. Sure. Um, yeah, as camp counselors do. But, you know, do. I think 
I think that the films, I mean, so the films are certainly a product of their time, right? I mean, so the last time that three of us got together uh, for one of these, we talked about The Matrix, which is also, uh, you know, uh, uh, about this idea of a future within which there are, Mm. you know, machines that have just kind of Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so narrowed the possibilities for human experience and life that, uh, you know, we might, we may as well be, you know, extinct, right? I mean, so this film is doing a similar thing, uh, you know, uh, at an early period, but, you know, investigating some of those themes uh, through, again, sort of this, you know, uh, the sense of general worry uh, that was existing sort of in the background of the culture at the time. But I I wanted just to kind of come back to a couple of comments that have been made thus far, because firstly, you know, Linda Hamilton is phenomenal uh, in both of these movies. And I think I, I, I didn't appreciate how great she is until... I was able to look at both performances back to back because in T1, I mean, she, you know, in The Terminator, she's selling the notion that she is, you know, a waitress. She's, you know, uh, uh, you know, a young person going to nightclubs, uh, hanging out with her friends, uh, rolling her eyes at uh, this guy who stands her up for the date. And, uh, you know, it's just it's it's like, you know, she's very much a person in the world. Right. Uh-huh. The transformation between Sarah Connor in the first film and then, you know, in the second film, which I guess takes place uh, 10 years after the first uh, in the chronology of the movie, I mean, just night and day, right? I mean, you talk about the trauma that she's witnessed, the degree to which uh, she's living in a state of, you know, sort of perpetual terror and fear and worry, uh, the way in which she's sort of cultivated uh, not only her body. I mean, you know, you have this kind of physical transformation. Uh, Linda Hamilton took it upon herself to, you know, hit the gym in a way that would sort of reflect the type of terror that this woman Mm -hmm. has experienced. But then also the transformation of her mind. I mean, you get a little bit of it in the first film if you if you know what you're looking for, but you you, you sort of you see her uh, sort of emerge first as this kind of again this waitress you know young person etc. But by the end of the film, she's completely agentic, right? She's she's making decisions. She's in control of her destiny, which I think uh, is important for the film. Absolutely. And that arc continues in the uh, in the interim without us sort of witnessing exactly what she's been up to. But when we meet her again. You know, it's just completely believable that a person who's experienced the trauma that she has would have, you know, just been single minded in, uh, you know, all the decisions that she had made are decisions made in reference to this future, her mission, right? Because she's no longer a person living a life. She's a soldier uh, 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 in the midst of a war, right? And I think... Uh, there's there's a lot that I want to say there about sort of parenthood, motherhood in particular, uh, that I think this film is really getting to. But but Andy, jump in. Yeah, I, I see you there. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much that's it's just so rich. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes. my god. Well, and I um, uh, you know I I am uh, not sh- you know I, I I don't want to get out over my skis or you know be the <laughs> sure. the the minister who sees everything through you know lenses of. Uh, you know, a religious perspective. Sure. But, you know, this is, uh, this is an annunciation movie. This mm. is unto mm-hmm. you, a child will be born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, um, and look at those initials, right? John Connor. Yeah, to, yeah totally. 
<laughs> you know, and it, you know, and you know, he's the savior. He's literally, you know, the savior yeah. of mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, even to the point of like, um, you know, in the context of, you know, a, a friend of mine who's a Presbyterian minister um, made a great point. I think for a, in, it was like one of his Advent sermons. Um, you know, but he was he was saying that, you know. In the in the context of uh, you know the the gospel stories of Jesus Jesus's birth, you know having an angel show up to announce to you that uh, you know that the Savior's coming, you know it it's it would be the equivalent of of um, in the modern day t- uh, terms of like a fully armed Apache you know war helicopter rising up over the crest of the hill with, you know, lights blazing and all of its laser sights locked on you. You know, these were beings of, um, you know, of power and devastation and to be delivering this message of, you know, salvation and grace, um, you know, really fits in a weird way with, you know, this, uh, this soldier who's, who's been, uh, been dispatched back to, um, you know, complete this time loop. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that, I mean, there's, you know, uh, if you think about what it must feel like, right, to be, uh, you know, so so using the the religious um, uh, uh, imagery that you've given us, right, so if you think about the terror, right? That uh, that that you know this this young woman might feel uh, in being told that she's uh, you know to play a role in this in this grand narrative, right? For all of uh, humankind, right? I mean, so the film you know really kind of plays up on that, right? It's sort of sort of I mean, there's one there's a way in which you might think about uh, the Terminator as a film as sort of saying, you know, what was Mary going through, right? What what was that like, right? And sort of just expanding upon that. But there's a way in which I think the film is kind of trying to wrestle with um at least as i'm as i have come to see it over 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 time is really trying to wrestle with some of the just the anxieties that all parents have to navigate right i mean you know there's this kid and you know i'm responsible uh you know the future is going to judge me on the choices i make today and i hope i make the right ones and there's just you know there's a way in which you can kind of view especially the Terminator, um, as kind of a, just a real meditation on the anxieties of motherhood. Um, and, you know, the first film was written by James Cameron with uh, his uh, wife at the time, I believe, Gail Ann Hurd, who was the producer, and she was also co-writer. And then, of course, interestingly, they divorced, and I think... Cameron ended Linda up marrying Hamilton. Linda yes. Hamilton later, which <laughs> yes. uh, there's a lot there to unpack. Sure. I don't... Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he, there's a lot. I looked it up. He's been married on. like yeah. five times, and it's all to like you know co-producers or co-writers or co or leads in his films. I mean, yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> that guy's got there, some issues. Sure. We'll just you know, can't we'll just put an, put an asterisk there. <laughs> but um, but I think I think it's interesting that you know that that there was a a, a woman as the as the the co-writer of that first film uh, again because you know so much of what's happening. Uh, in that first film is almost, I mean, it's almost like, you know, uh, bodies that are coded as male bodies, right? So, you know, uh, the Terminator's not actually male, but sort of coded male, right? Uh, are engaged in this literal fight 
over, um, you know, what's going to happen with this woman's body, right? Uh-huh. Uh, this, uh, you know, uh, you know, woman's body, who, you know, valued as a vessel in certain ways, uh, valued because uh, of its capacity to, uh, you know, to bring about bring about life. And it, it just, you know, the film kind of has these characters, you know, wrestling pulling in certain directions but the 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 climax of the film in many ways is uh sarah connor deciding for herself right she's making a choice she becomes agentic she's no longer only sort of a pawn in their story in their narrative in their struggle right Uh she becomes a character uh that we the viewer uh are thinking about now as a subject rather than an object right the beginning of the film sarah connor is an object she is just sort of a uterus right by mm-hmm. the end of the film, she's a woman making choices uh, and, you know, kicking ass and uh, riding off into the sunset, uh, qu- quite literally in the second film. But, um, but yeah, so, so it's, it's, I think, um, it's really interesting to think about her as kind of a, a reproductive rights kind of uh, hero here mm-hmm. uh, in, in The Terminator. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to go a little bit uh, deep in this this the sex scene between uh between Sarah and Reese um yeah really struck me for um the repeated imagery of their hands clenched mm-hmm. together yeah. um i you know not a huge fan my teenage self would would shudder to hear me say this but not a huge <laughs> fan of sex scenes in movies um sure but you know i th- for me, it was it was a scene that was not uh, that was not titillating. It was rather illuminating, um, mm. you know. And to to your point of uh, of Sarah as you know, sort of developing agency over the course of the movie. I mean, you know, she was the uh, uh, she initiated the the contact. She was the driving yeah. force. You know, she was clearly you know an equal or dominant partner in in the sex and um you know and there was that scene of just the the fierce tension the clinging to each other almost Mm -hmm. um Mm. there there was just uh, i thought it it really hit me i have like uh, a memory of seeing this movie for the first time when i was again a teenager somehow but like older than when i saw Uh, T2, obviously, in which I was like, for exactly the same reason that Andy just mentioned, I was like disappointed in the sex scene. I was like, I was like, for as much time as they spend here, like, shouldn't this be somehow hotter? (laughs) (laughs) And now on the remake, on the rewatch, I'm like, I feel like movies today would either be a lot more voyeuristic if they were going to spend that amount of time in a way that I would like want to fast forward through if I was like streaming it Uh, or they would just be like, just give you just enough to be like, okay, sex happened here. And now like it's a plot point. Now we're going to move on. So the combination of the way that the, that the film takes a couple of minutes of its runtime of a very lean runtime to spend on that dynamic uh, shot from several different angles and cut together really well is powerful for all the reasons that I think uh, Andy just said, she becomes like, agent it's part of her there's like a legit character development thing that is happening not simply a like also here's boobs which is mm. and in a in a fun little flip on the um 
you know, the Annunciation story, he's the virgin in their dynamic, and she is the the sexually experienced, uh, you know, quote unquote older older partner, more experienced partner. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting, right, to think about you know from his perspective, right? He has spent you know a lifetime sort of imagining this woman right uh, uh or sort of looking up to quite literally looking up to uh this kind of historical figure uh this kind of larger than life person um you know to think about uh you know what that then means for that for that relationship but i mean so there are other relationships in this in this film in the terminator that i think are just really really fascinating i mean so in the terminator we don't really see john connor we only hear about him through mm-hmm. kyle reese um and there's just this really interesting kind of uh, uh, cyclical kind of reveal or reveal of a cycle in that we get the sense initially when, when we, you know, are hearing about John Connor and we hear that Kyle Reese kind of, you know, looks up to him and, and there's kind of this mentor avuncular relationship. And then there's the reveal that this relationship that we were thinking of as kind of hierarchical in one direction also has this other, uh, you know, temporal complication to it in that the person who was his mentor uh, is his son, right? And Mm -hmm. he is the father of the person uh, that he's looked up to. And so there's this really interesting cycle of fathers and sons uh, happening in that first film. And we get a little bit of that in the second film as well, because uh, you get sort of, you know, the, um, uh, the T-800, you know, uh, that, that uh, John, you know, uh, introduces as uncle Bob. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that seems like a throwaway line, but it's, it's, it it also sort of reveals something of the relationship. It's again, this avuncular relationship. um, But now, but again, it's it's the it's the younger person, right? It's John kind of mentoring uh, this this machine and bringing out his, you know, for lack of a better term, his humanity, right? So you get the character of John Connor in both of these films, kind of subverting what you might expect in terms of leadership, but also uh, in terms of a type of just to touch again on the parental and familial aspects of this film, uh, playing the role of uh, of parent to those who are in some sense uh, in, you know, uh, in positions of authority in regard, in in relation to him. Question about uh, T2 and the character of John Connor. When we meet John Connor, I mean, when we meet John Connor, do we think that he believes what his mom has been telling him his whole life or no? No way. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, because <laughs> he mentions I mean, he mentions it awfully casually to his like redheaded mulleted friend, uh, sure. like oh yeah, so like you know my mom has said that this kind of thing. That's how I know how to like whatever burgle ATMs and like hotwire vehicles. But like so I guess sure. I'm happy for those skills. But like we do not think that he's like he entertains this possibility in his mind. Has uh, he's definitely not living out that destiny. I was just curious. Well. It seems it seems to me I mean so it seems to me that he used to believe it right so so it's not that he sort of never believed it and was always sort of resisting his mother it seems like he used to believe it uh then uh when she was arrested uh his anger at her 
for abandoning him, right? I mean, she didn't choose to abandon him, but uh, her actions led to her abandonment of him. And that manifests as his rejection of her, rejection of the narrative, rejection of, uh, you know, her account of his of his destiny. Um, so I guess, you know, to answer your question, Derek, it's not, it doesn't, it didn't feel to me that he just didn't believe it. He actively disbelieved it uh, as, you know, kind of... Uh, as an act of defiance, as a sort of you know preteen uh, in relationship to his to his to his mother, who and had a tendency. Is, I mean, she was you know she's holding on tight, right? Wow, I mean, she yeah. was she was definitely you know recognizing the stakes of of, of his childhood. Um, it's not surprising that uh, you know that some rebellion uh, uh, was forthcoming from uh, from John. I mean, talk about your helicopter mothers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Apache helicopter in this tiger, case. Yeah. Tiger mom. Somebody, yeah. somebody uh, oh take a seat, Amy Chua. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, and it's so developmentally appropriate. I mean, that that is that age, you know. Yeah. You know, I I don't know if Eddie Furlong is, is the greatest actor, but, like, you believe it. Sure, you know, yeah. He's, he's a snot-nosed little punk. Yeah. And, like, he... That's very clearly who he is. And you're just like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know? Now, he and his redheaded, mulleted friend, when you saw this movie, did you think they were, they were cool? I mean, yeah. I'll say, I'll say I did. So, so not, not with, um, so it seems Andy, Andy's reluctant about it. I I am, I am enthusiastic about how cool I thought these kids were. I mean, so there's, I'll I'll just share with you. There's a kid uh, on the street I live on now who has like a little dirt bike kind of thing. uh, And he's just tearing up and down the streets. And so the adult in me thinks, you know, how dangerous someone, you know, put a, put a, you know, put some control on this kid. Uh, But the, the kid in me who saw T2 thinks this kid's John Connor. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's as cool as a cucumber, right? I mean, uh, you know, so, so I, I, yeah, uh, that, those kids were, were, uh, undeniably cool. And I just want to flag, uh, you know, the redheaded friend. I, I forget the actor's name. I've seen him in some other things, yeah, of course, yeah. but, um, just completely, uh, uh, the, the, the moment that sticks out to me that I've lived with, uh, for quite some time is when they're at the Galleria in the, uh, uh, in the, the, the arcade and the T-1000 comes up and shows him the picture. Do you know this kid? Without hesitation, the kid looks at the picture, blank face, no, nah, never seen him, walks away mm-hmm. and tells John to get out of there. I mean... What a what not not only what a friend right but like that's the type of uh, uh, that's the type of I don't know that's the type of uh, countercultural um, you know resourcefulness that the younger version of me wanted to surround myself with right the mm-hmm. types of friends who would uh, lie to the police on my behalf uh, uh, you know um, that image was kind of seared into my into my mind. It's it's just excellent praxis. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, and, and I guess this is where I, I, I'll out myself as, uh, you know, uh, being enough of, uh, you know, kind of a sheltered middle class white kid, goody two shoes that like, you know, sure. I, didn't tr- I didn't trust the bad kids. I was just like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I guess they shouldn't be taking money out of an ATM. That's somebody else's money. <laughs> I definitely did not have a nuanced understanding of uh, of capitalism and, um, <laughs> you know, and it was just like, 
I get that they're cool, but like, I don't know. It just seems dangerous. Um, sure. <laughs> you know, I, I think, and Derek can probably, you know, attest to this in our, in our friend group. I was always, I'm, I'm, I think probably always the one who was on the, like on the cautious side of the, like the, the, you know, the mischief spectrum. And Hey man, yeah. you know, that's true. I will vouch for that. <laughs> but also like, I can say now that you were taking one for the team because I also felt that same nervousness, but I knew you would say something before I had to out myself. <laughs> so, like, so there's something of that redheaded mulleted kid in in that as well, but totally the opposite. I also I, that's, that's kind of you to say. I I also I didn't think John Connor was particularly cool. I'm like, he seems like kind of a just a punk ass who like like yes his dirt bike is dangerous whatever but like and that's cool but like i had exactly that same moment in which like i was putting myself in the position of the redheaded mulleted guy like with with the cop coming and be like dude and i was like i hope that when it comes to this i can be that chill or pretend to be that chill when i'm sure my heart is racing and just like and he comes back again to be like oh hey i think i saw that kid you're looking for and then gets thrown out of the frame but yeah but you know but again like what 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 you know what friendship right i mean like Mm -hmm. like like if you just sort of um extrapolate like that kid's backstory right i mean i'm sure that he and john have gotten some hijinks in the past and you know it's probably the case that john has sort of taught him how to respond to authority figures and uh you know i mean yeah there's just there's 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 a lot there that i think uh the a young version of myself really appreciated in that dynamic because we don't spend much time with them together but we get enough to kind of recognize you know that these kids are kind of on their own in a very mm-hmm. real sense, doing their own thing, uh, but they've got something of a code. They've got something of a shorthand between the two of them. I mean, you know, the redheaded kid kind of blocks, uses his body to block so that the T one thousand can't see John. He allows John to kind of look over his shoulder, scope it out, make his uh, his exit. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't uh, see him again after this. Yeah. Uh, Good, good, good for the kid. I think um, he was concussed. But for the rest uh, of the day, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's, it, it's also a great example, I think, of um, with maybe one exception for me um, of how inc- how impeccable the casting for this for these movies was. Um, mm. Every character is so inhabited, and it feels so fully realized. Even though, you know, like uh, John Connor's foster parents. Holy yeah. shit! These yeah, right. unpleasant people who did not deserve to meet the end that they met, you know. Nonetheless, yeah. but you know the just those those two character actors. I can't remember their names, but you know you've seen them right, in a bunch yeah. of other stuff. Um, they look you know, so young, it, but they were they're so um, just they're so complete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the same thing in the, in the first movie, like the um, you know. It, you know, Lance Henriksen is, you know, at, at first it, it kind of does like a rope-a-dope where you're like, you know, oh, you know, he, the cop's on the case and like, yeah. you know, and it turns out he's just like a totally irrelevant smart ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he, he's not even, he's not even smart enough to like realize that, you know, this psychologist, Dr. Silverman is a real dick. Yeah. And he's yeah. just like, oh, he's pretty funny. You know, and then he just gets like killed. He doesn't even get killed on screen. He's just... uh um, you know, but he's such, it, it just is, 
I'm, I'm trailing off now, but but I think you guys know what I mean. It's, there's totally. just no, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the films do a great job of kind of uh, creating a world that feels real and inhabited by characters that you feel you sort of that you know, right? I mean, so um, again, as you mentioned, you know, uh, John's step, uh, sorry, John's uh, foster parents, you know, the, they feel like real characters. And when you get that scene later on in the film where John calls the house to try to you know make sure that they're safe. You get this moment where, you know, you understand why John is concerned. Like, you know, Deb, Debbie's not always, why, Debbie's never this nice, right? Uh, and then, you know, you get that wonderful scene where the, the you know, T-800 uh, mimics John's voice and tries to, you know, uh, uh, run some, some, some interference here and, and mm-hmm. figures out, okay, you're... You know, your foster your parents, foster are, parents dead. are already dead. Yeah, that's. I mean, just such a such a wonderful wonderful moment, and just again to speak to you to the to the point about you know sort of you know how we know these characters and how uh, our expectations uh, are in some moments subverted. We've talked about it, but I just want to get back to the Galleria Mall once again because just you know when I think about this film. And like yourself, uh, like all of us, I guess, uh, we didn't have the experience of seeing the first film being, you know, terrified of Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator. And then in the second film, uh, having our minds, you know, blown by the by that that sort of that access hallway um, scene. Mm-hmm. But what a scene. I mean, you know, uh, you know, w- w- we're already thinking that we know, you know, who's the human, who's the machine. Right. And then uh, you see John running away. He's in this back uh, this back hallway. The door opens. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger has the the you know the box, box of the long of stay of roses. Yeah. Oh, he throws the he throws the, the the box aside. He's got the shotgun and he's pointing it at John. And you're thinking, how many minutes are we into this movie? Yeah. How 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 is the Terminator already going to kill John? And then he says, get down. And then it's then we're off to the races. I mean, it's just. Mm. What a wonderful scene. And I I just want to say as well that the beauty of making that scene happen in this kind of isolated space, right? Where it's kind of your focus is drawn uh, to the Terminator. There's no way for John to get away. It's just this kind of this this meeting, right? Uh, And then he gets out of the way. John gets out of the way. And then it's Terminator versus Terminator. They're throwing themselves into the wall. And you're realizing, hang on a second, the person I thought was the human, in part, I think, playing on the expectation that the audience is going to be, you know, uh, coming into the film with some middle class values and some uh, implicit understandings about, uh, you know, the police uh, figure as the trustworthy figure, right, in, in certain ways. Um, but that all gets subverted here. And then you're thinking, wait a second, Who's on whose side? What are the sides here? Mm-hmm. What's happening? Yeah, it's just a lovely, lovely scene. And just that use of space, you know, oh, yeah. That, yeah. The, the confined corridor. You know, the what jumped out at me, uh, uh, you know, watching t- uh, Terminator 1 again this afternoon was like, you know, Cameron's ver- vision of uh, Los Angeles is like 75% alleyways. You know, yeah. it's just all these like <laughs> tight, confined, yeah. liminal spaces. You know, yeah. the movie kind of, you know, is this series of like tours through these, uh, you know, these very odd in-between spaces that, you know, are, have, have been sort of dehumanized. You know, they've, they're, they're spaces that humanity has already been stripped out from. Even, you know, going to the, 
God, that final scene on you know on the factory floor where they activate all the robots yeah, yeah. in order to like provide cover. You know, and there, there's just this sort of horror of, of soulless automation. Um, yeah. You know, I just, God, I love, yeah, I just, all, just the in-betweenness. Um, and then in T2, um, the, the you know, when they're at the, the Cyberdyne offices at night with, um, and I can't remember the, the actor's name, but God, do I love him. Mm-hmm. I love that actor yeah. so much. Um you know, that's, he's probably my favorite actor in the whole movie. Um, mm. You know, it just, uh, but, you know, the, the eeriness of the abandoned, you know, after hours space, mm-hmm. um, which then gets occupied in this, you know, <laughs> sure. perverse Very and intense way. gassy way, yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm really curious. You mentioned, Andy, you were like, all of the casting is incredible except for one. <laughs> I'm, I, I want to know who that <laughs> one person is. If you say Arnold Schwarzenegger... <laughs> did you i they were originally thinking of oh, yeah. casting uh and i, I shit you not oj simpson oh yes i read that yeah i've read yeah. that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And cameron ultimately cameron ultimately pulled the trigger and he was like it's gonna be a little creepy having a black guy getting chased by cops sure. all movie long mm-hmm. sure which sure. you know thumbs up james and, cameron and you know, and I, 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 I don't know where I heard this, but I heard that at some point, that someone had said, "Well, but you know, he's just not believable as the bad guy." Um, so, I don't know. <laughs> take that, take that, you know, and, and, and place it wherever you place it. But, uh, uh, but that was one of the reasons uh, that I heard he was not, he was not cast. But you know, yeah. initially, I think it was the case that they also thought, you know, when when Schwarzenegger came on, I think Schwarzenegger was considered for the Kyle Reese role. For Reese, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, and they went they they went with um, uh, Michael Bean because they thought he had more range and uh, and so just Derek to your question, my answer is I I was not impressed with the acting chops of Michael Bean. Oh I, my god! I thought he was out of his element, and um, I just I I didn't I didn't feel it. Fascinating. You know, I thought he was I thought he was fine, and you know there he wasn't terrible, but you know it just I think. Playing alongside Linda Hamilton did him no favor. Sure, I, mm. so I think that's I think that's quite right. I it had been so long since I'd seen T one and I saw T one, you know, when I was fifteen or sixteen and didn't know. Like I did not. I remember that I thought the person who played Kyle Reese was cool. Like I thought the character of Kyle Reese is cool. Is what that? I mean, I didn't realize it was Michael Bean. I did, had no idea how many goddamn movies michael bean is in he's in if like if it was between 1985 and like 1999 it turns out it stars michael bean he's just everywhere (laughs) when when we were watching the rock for this podcast i was like oh yeah he's like he's the guy who like leads the like seal team or whatever into the oh uh, the thing he's that guy and i was like but i didn't put i like i didn't even know his name when i was like watching that movie again i'm like oh no it's just johnny ringo from tombstone and then i'm like holy shit he's everywhere it's incredible yeah. okay but you know right. and i think so, in, in in a way that you know he's there's it, it kind of suits the movie i guess to have him be the sort of charisma vacuum but you know i i couldn't help but wonder you know what you know what what would like i don't know harrison ford be like in this role you know what would mm-hmm. somebody who like you know, has has more of a presence and more of like a, you know, yeah. like bring some pop to his scenes. Um, you know, and again, he's not bad. I, right, I experienced right. him as serviceable, but, you know, there was, um, you know, it just, 
compared to the um, just the the drive and the emotion that that uh, Hamilton brought to her role, and you know, I, I mean, I give him his credit. Schwarzenegger I, sure. inhabited the 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 unstoppable killing machine really well. Um, <laughs> he sure did. You know, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, Andy, I think that you're right about 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 being in this film i mean i i don't think that he is you know he he doesn't or at least for me he's never come across in this film as like charismatic as in certain ways it's not even i don't think it's even right to think of him as sort of the leading man in the film right i mm-hmm. mean uh, the lead in the film is or the leads in the film are schwarzenegger and hamilton yeah. um yeah. i think um but what i find interesting about sort of you know kind of the depiction of of men in the first film, or masculinity, is that on the one hand you get you know Schwarzenegger, uh, Schwarzenegger in the role of the Terminator, which kind of on the surface appears to be kind of a super man, right? Like this, you know, uh, physically intimidating sort of the body says completely masculine, right? The mm-hmm. um, uh, you, you li- the, his dick is yeah. literally swinging as he walks up to as the you, as he enters the Park screen. Hill. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. And so, and then you get you know. Uh, hyper hyper focused, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, productivity, impervious, just you know, no emotion, right? Sort of. So you're getting this kind of this version of masculinity in the Terminator, mm. but then the film says not real, right? This is manufactured, and then you have Bean on the other hand, kind of giving you this other version of masculinity that. You know, is his character motivated by, uh, you know, love, uh, care, you know, very much uh, uh, wrestling with emotions, right? I mean, you mentioned earlier the the scene of the the flashback and uh, you kind of see some of his uh, regrets in life, his terror, his his feeling. And so his affect is uh, closer to the surface. Now, I I think it's, 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 it's interesting because, you know, you get... By the end of the film, you get Reese uh, kind of uh, engaging in this type of self-sacrifice, right? He's sacrificing mm-hmm. himself for, uh, you know, protection of the other. Um, and in the second film, you get the Terminator, uh, you know, the the uh, reprogrammed Terminator, um, also talking about sacrifice, right? About, uh, you know, you have... Uh, John, um, this is when they're sort of getting the weapons from the the weapons store. uh, Mm -hmm. um, uh, But you have John sort of saying, well, look, aren't you afraid of dying? And the Terminator says, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm doing a job. The mission's the only thing that matters. Uh, I'm irrelevant to the mission, right? And the mission in this case is protecting John. And at this point, you kind of get this sense. It's kind of, again, just to talk about kind of callbacks to the first movie, you know, you're reminded that the thing that defines Kyle Reese's humanity is his uh, his self sacrifice, his affect, and towards the end of the second film in T two, uh, after his uh, you know his learning has been sort of turned on, um, you get a version of the Terminator who comes around and comes to understand what it is to uh, to have uh, to some extent emotions, to have feelings, to care about those uh, in his protection and under his care, uh, and in a sense, you kind of get this kind of you know. Pinocchio story of the uh, of the marionette made into a into a real boy. Absolutely, yeah. so, for me, yeah. that's the that's absolutely the significance of it being uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the second one, who ends up having the line "Come with me if you want to live." There's there really mm. is sort of like a duplication of that, or just a recapitulation of the yeah. role that Kyle Reese plays. Except now it's being done by an artificial intelligence, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Andy, I cut yeah. you off. And the um, well, and. 
and I think if you look at, uh, at the, the, the Reese character through, you know, this lens of a lifetime of trauma, you know, it, it does work in a certain way that, you know, he's, he's, he is the good soldier. He is functioning. He mm-hmm. has a purpose. Um, yeah. You know, right before the sex scene, uh, you know, she says, how do you cope with it all? He's like, oh, you just turn it all off. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. a robot, <laughs> Kyle. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's just like it's like we're this close to like making the subtext, you know, lifting up to the surface. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. But um, you know, so in a way, in a way, it works for me. I just, I, I I just wish there was a little more there. That's, I I think that's all. Um, And I know, you know, I know we're kind of getting close to our time. Um, I had one thought about, um, you know, relating to your parenting point from way back in the Mm -hmm. beginning of our conversation. You know, which you know is the dynamic that is uh, much more operative in uh, in T two than in T one, um, and and you know that's that Sarah Connor is confronted with the the you know it's at points the likelihood that she will witness the death of her child, and you know as one who in my professional capacity has been present to people yeah. uh, facing that grief. Um, it is not uh, it is not inappropriate that the movie kind of binds that loss up with the literal end of the fucking world. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The uh, there the 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 death of a child, the the wrongness of that um, is apocalyptic, yeah. and you know, and and there's something there's something in the just the relentlessness of the of that grief and of that incredible pain you know that does kind of fit with the you know the relentlessness of the pursuit of the of the terminator Um, yeah you know that it's yeah there's um that that grief can feel like like a hurricane it can feel like a nuclear bomb because there is no there is no greater pain yeah so that was that was one of my thoughts, and not. Uh, and <laughs> I was going to be like, that's. I was like, that is heavy. We are getting close to the end. What's your? Favorite I'm going to take us out on a, <laughs> take us out on the high point, guys. <laughs> um, Winston, I, I didn't want to cut you off. It looked like you might be saying something. No, I was just thinking about what you've said here about um, you know the 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 way in which you know again the loss of a child is just you know just world shattering. And I think, you know, the films just do such a, uh, a an interesting job of bringing us into, bring, as the audience, bringing us into uh, sort of an understanding of the intimacy of the bond between parent and child, even across sort of this, this, this distance of, of time, right? I mean, so, you know, as I mentioned before, you get sort of Kyle having been uh, tutored by his son. You get uh, John Connor sort of tutoring the, uh, you know, Uncle Bob, the Terminator. You get, um, you know, these kind of interesting relationships between parents and and children or parent figures and child figures but i'm i'm reminded of you know again you know the the just the horror uh that that sarah uh, feels in the second film, which where the elevator door opens um, yes. and the Terminator is there, and you know she's just kind of backpedaling, and you know John is the one who says "Mom, Mom," you know, and and and, and sort of calls her attention, and at some point, you know, the, you know they're still sort of in this moment. 
he he comforts her and tells her it's okay, right? And then almost, you know, it's not it's not immediate, but it's 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 very close to immediately she accepts the version of uh reality that he presents to her, right? She spent her you know, the last decade of her life fearing this moment, but her son tells her come with me and she's there, right? She reaches out and it's striking to see because she reaches out and she allows the Terminator to extend his hand to hers, right? Getting back to hands again, mm-hmm. uh, hands clasping one another. She allows the Terminator to touch her, which if you think about the horror that she's, that she's you know, experiencing, how could she, right? But the bridge is her love for her son. Uh, and I think it's just, it's, it's a powerful moment to see, uh, you know, how the impossible becomes mm-hmm. possible uh, because, it, it's because of that connection that she has to John. And it's, again, that agency. It's not just, uh, you know, Sarah Connor existing as, uh, you know, as a uterus to produce the savior. You know, there is this, you know, it's that she loves her son and she will do everything for him. You know, that it's it's not just this mechanistic, purpose-driven quality. I think Uh, it's really important, too, that it's a receptive kind of agency, that it's specifically her being like, I will change the way that I Mm -hmm. see the world or change my way of looking at things because I'm accepting that from somebody that I care about. And even at this particular moment, when my defense mechanisms are at their absolute highest, I can put all that stuff aside. Doesn't it seem like it takes John Connor forever i know this it's in slow motion in general but like sure. the terminator is three steps out of the elevator before sure John Connor. i'm like it that rewatching that was intense for me for sure that reason another thing so like one other comment on this particular thing um i had forgotten sort of how much voiceover is in both of them in the second one for sure how much of linda hamilton's yeah. voice specifically we get there's yeah thinking about the parent the parenting role, she ends up, you get the feeling, despite everything that we've just said about sort of accepting this worldview, we get, we get her testimony that she is still sort of wary of Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator with John. And then she has to reflect like this person isn't, well, this machine isn't ever going to come Mm. home drunk. is never going to get angry with him. Blah, 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 blah. It was an interesting sort of given what we had seen about parenting both from sort of the foster parents, from Linda Hamilton's character herself, from all the things that we're talking about here, that was just that was sort of like an interesting bit of dialogue that didn't seem necessarily to fit the rest of the imaginary of the movie. I don't know if there's any mm. any comment to make on that. It's just I was I was sort of struck by her explicit meditation on Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator as a father figure, and also the way that she was imagining him being a good guy is being like, well, he's not drunk, so <laughs> sure, like, put that in the pot. That's a low column. bar, but yes, what the hell? Exactly. You know, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting. I mean, so yeah, you don't. So in the first film, you don't get reference to her father. You get reference to her mother, right? Mm. Uh, she's calling right. her mother at the cabin, um, etc. So, so I guess one could imagine. Uh, a kind of a challenging uh, father figure um, and, you know, extrapolate from there and get to the second film. Um, I think it's interesting, though, that we, we do get... So, so Andy, earlier on you mentioned the actor Joe Morton, who's playing uh, Miles Dyson. I mean, just, you know, uh, 
hero of mine. I mean, so, you know, the smartest guy in the film uh, here, uh, you know, black man, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, also responsible for the end of the world uh but (laughs) look at how quickly he pivots right i mean he accepts uh, he accepts new information and he says okay i guess i'm destroying my life's work uh it's like in the in in the span of like 15 minutes of course there's also you know he's been shot at and everything and so forth but um but what i find really interesting there is that you know when we're introduced to him you have his spouse uh asking him to step away from the work and be with the children mm. uh and it's not antagonistic it's sort of it's it's jocular it's uh, it's playful um but there is this sense that as a father you know that that he is he's preoccupied right and so i think it's interesting that when we when we have the linda hamilton's sarah connor uh voiceover talking about how the um you know the terminator is not going to be preoccupied and will always be vigilant will always put john first mm-hmm. i do think that we get to see something of a juxtaposition between the characters what's interesting about you know the miles dyson character in that uh, is that when uh when sarah connor is shooting at him uh, his son is nearby, and the son puts himself. Uh, I think the kid's name is Donnie, or the character's name is Donnie, right? Donnie puts himself in front of his father and says, "Leave my daddy alone," right? Uh, risking his life to protect his father. So again, we see again uh, the subversion of the father-son relationship. You see the son in the position of care for the father, and so whatever was going on, you know, in the idea earlier on that that miles dyson might have been preoccupied with work we do get the sense that there's this strong connection uh between him and his child uh his children excuse me uh in that uh the child is you know willing to 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 li- to risk life and limb uh to protect to protect the father so just really so, again just uh, so many points of contact here on uh, the power of the parental role and the, the mm. bond between parent and child and uh, subversions of what you might expect there. And that, that might be a good pivot to kind of the last thing I wanted to bring up, um, which is I am really, uh, I would love to know what, you know, where James Cameron's uh, mistrust of policing came from. That's um, a great question. You know, he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't seem to dislike police. You know, the, the, the cop figures in the movies are, are treated as humans or as their people, sure. their characters, yeah. but he has no regard for policing whatsoever. Hmm. Expand do you rem- on that a do, little bit. Do you remember what it says on the, on the, on the sides of the cop cars? No. It doesn't say it doesn't say to serve and protect. It says to care and protect. Mm. And that really that really hit me. I was like, you know, why would it you know, and I'm sure it's period accurate to, you know, Los Angeles, but there mm. was something in that word that just kind of that just kind of struck me. Um and you know, and then just the the utter uselessness of right. of sure. you know, she should that not be the safest place in Los Angeles in the back room of a fully staffed police precinct they yeah. were useless to her <laughs> we see that yeah. utterly see that useless he won when arnold schwarzenegger crashes in the thing and just destroys everything we also see it in t2 like it's important to recognize the distinction between like what cops looked like in 1984 and t1 and like what that swat team that shows up to uh, what's it like you can see the militarization of uh policing between those 
equally useless. Miles yeah. Dyson also gets the uh, the very best line in the movie when as he is dying and he just sort of looks over the cop and is like, I don't know how much longer I can hold this. <laughs> and he's just got yeah. this thing And then it's the everybody out. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You know, and, and just the, the last my kind of last thought about the the police and, and the there's there's a you know kind of a, a you know an audio cue or a you know a, a piece of audio is there you know kind of escaping into the wilderness to hide in the culvert uh, after the massacre at the police station and you know you hear a news reporter saying you know the greatest mobilization of police presence in California history is underway as they search for the killer and I don't think we see another cop for the entire rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're all mobilized in the different direction. I just did they, you know. It's That's like, a great point. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. I just I just loved that. When it you know, it hit me. I was just like, Oh yeah, they have, they're just gone. You yeah. Know, they are they become completely irrelevant uh, to the to the story. Um they 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 can care all they want, but they could not protect and they, they have no there's a high degree of regard for the amount that they can care and protect is the other bit. Like they, they straight up like the arrogance of the police force be like, it's fine. I mean, we in the audience know, and Sarah Connor knows that what it, what is being dealt with is a terminator and they are not fine. But yeah. still the idea that like, it's, it's going to be okay. We got this is little strong. lady. Yeah. <laughs> little lady. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, let me just say something. I know we're, we're almost done, but right there is, is such an important point, right? About men believing women or not believing women. I think that the film mm. really, you know, it's a different film, uh, with the, uh, genders sort of, uh, you know, allocated differently. I think the fact that you have, uh, Sarah Connor saying, look, this is what I've seen. This is what's happened. Uh, and you have in the first film and in the second film, right? Particularly with the character of Dr. Silverman, which I mean, just a great character, great character, uh, in so many ways, but you have Dr. Silverman saying, look, I, you know, for your own good, right? It's this literal paternalism, right? This literal, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not listening to you, um, you know, another six months in, inside, right? I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, and then of course, yeah, you get you Sarah Connor at the, towards uh, the midway point or closer to the end of the, the second film, you know, Sarah Connor uh, sort of talking uh, to a room of, of mostly men saying, look, you know, men, right? Uh, when you create, this is what you create. You create these machines, these uh, artificial uh, things, right? When women create, right? I made John, right? You made the Terminator. You get this kind of, this this real, um, you know, it's wow. just, it just comes to a head, right? The tension of, uh, of gender and sex and uh, the ways in which the work of uh, certain persons uh, in a society gets valued or under or devalued, um, and the voice mm. of uh, particular persons, uh, in this case women, uh, are devalued um, uh, throughout the film. So it's just it's it's just very nicely done to make the point. Yeah, you know, is there a, <laughs> if if Cassandra was Charles, would there be a complex named for him? <laughs> that's right. Oh, wow. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, that's yeah. a perfect note to end on. I feel like. Yeah. Thank you guys once again for uh, coming on this uh, podcast to talk about these two excellent movies. I think we're doing 12 Monkeys in December. Is that right? 12 Monkeys. <laughs> or or Jurassic Park. It can be literally Ooh, anything. Yeah. yeah. Either would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. 
All right. Thanks, Derek. Really good to talk to you, Winston. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. And that's our show. Gratitude to Winston and Andy for the conversation. As always, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever your preferred service is. You can hit us up on Twitter where our handle is at Point10Podcast. And if you've got feedback or questions for us, reach out by email at Point10Pod at gmail.com. The 10 in both the Twitter and the email is the numeral 10. In episode 10, we're going back to 90s rom-coms as Dr. Annie Schultz joins us to talk about 1997's My Best Friend's Wedding. So stay tuned for that. For now, I'm Derek Gottlieb. This is the Point 10 Podcast, and we will see you next time.